1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Come and snatch us away. We want to be with you. Lord, when we, as we study this whole theme of the rapture, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your heart for us and how you have communicated this to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive all of those things and also all the instruction and the encouragement that is coupled with this incredible passage. We pray that you would use it for your glory and your purposes in our lives. Pray that each one of us would be sensitive to your Spirit's teaching this morning. We yield our lives to you. We yield our hearts to you. Whatever you want to speak to us, Lord, by your Spirit, related to this passage or related to, to entirely different things, we yield, we yield to you and we are humble before you for you to speak to us your words that are spirit and truth and that are life to us. We thank you that your word will outlive the heavens and the earth. And your word says, let you be true and every man a liar. And we know, Lord, that even if this whole world spoke out in unity against your word, it wouldn't change one thing regarding what truth is. So we thank you for the anchor of your word that we have. We pray that you would use this for your glory. We pray that you'd set it aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The rapture of the church is a very exciting doctrine to me for many, many reasons. And I'm, assure, I'm assuming that a lot of you uh, agree with me that it's very exciting to think about how he's going to take us home uh, to be with him. We must remember the context uh, that Jesus inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words into. The context is that these Thessalonians hadn't known the Lord for very long. And these Thessalonians were going through affliction. Paul has spent a chapter going over that. He's gone over the difficulty that they're experiencing. That's very important for us to see. So these, these believers have known the Lord at the most just a few months. Uh, the Apostle Paul spent about three weeks with them, but then he sent Timothy, dispatched Timothy to them for, for a short time and, and then returned uh, to Paul in Corinth, and that's the place from which he wrote this letter to this uh, new church. So he's already spoken in chapter one about their growth and how amazing their growth was which shows us it's pretty incredible that, uh, you know, without uh, a full revelation of his word, without established seasoned leaders, 
they have the Holy Spirit, they have God working in their life, and they're already producing a lot of fruit. It's pretty significant. Chapter 2, we saw Paul articulate how authentic he and his team um, was in their midst, you know, against any accusation that, that anyone could make that they were trying to fleece uh, the Thessalonians for what they could get out of them. Chapter 3, we saw Paul begin to comfort them regarding this affliction. He's starting to give them perspective. He knows that they could be stumbled by this persecution, thinking, where is God? And some of us have said that in our hearts to the Lord. Where is God when we're going through difficulty? He knows that they're incredibly vulnerable related to what, what uh, Satan has planned for them and what they're going through. And so he comforts them in that. And then we saw last week, the first 12 verses of chapter 4, he spoke of the importance of holiness and that the, the unholy relationships that we can have and the holy relationships that we're supposed to have greatly affect how we represent the Lord and it has great implications uh, in our lives. But now Paul switches to this subject, which evidently came to him from Timothy as something that he needed to deal with that they had questions about or they were struggling, and he'll get to that in a moment, but he's going to speak about the afterlife to them. They had questions about that. There's a lot of opinions out there, as you know, about the afterlife. Everyone's an expert. You know, everyone knows what happens. No one's ever, or most people that are so, that they're experts in what, you know, is contrary to scripture. They've never read the scripture uh, about it. They've never consulted the one who, um, you know, is in charge of it. They just are sudden, you know, kind of PhDs uh, about the afterlife, and they know what's going to happen. And sometimes in our life, we wonder, can I really know? You know, the world questions. At best, they say, we can't really know for sure. We hope this is the way it is. We, no one really knows, though, absolutely. But we do as Christians. We know. God hasn't left us in the dark regarding what comes after uh, this life. So Paul's going to deal with it. And he's going to talk about what's known as the rapture of the church. What is the rapture of the church? The rapture is the means by which God has chosen to remove his children out of the world immediately before he pours out his wrath on this world. Sometimes we can think that this world's just going to keep on going, how it's always gone on, you know, everything's never going to, you know, there's not going to be any significant changes, it's just going to keep going on, man's going to continue to be in rebellion to God, and God's never going to uh, give, give out punishment for uh, their rejection of Christ and being in rebellion to him. But that's not the case. God's going to pour out his wrath on the sinful, Christ-rejecting world. We're told that before we came to know Christ, we were children of wrath. We were deserving wrath from him because of our sin, because of our rejection of Christ. Uh, you know, if we, if we had heard about Christ and we'd rejected him before we came to know the Lord. And God sees all of it. He doesn't miss anything. Think about what God sees in any given moment in time during the day. Now we're told in Proverbs chapter 5 verse 21 this, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. All his paths. And the word ponders means to, to carefully consider and to weigh. So how could it be that God being, you know, so removed from us in terms of our physical location and how we see our relationship with him and the distance between he and us, which isn't the distance that we think, but we, we picture that. How could he see everything that happens at any given moment in every single human life? All the sin, all the murders, all the rapes, all the, the, uh, 
the, the wicked things that man does, he sees every single one of those things. He sees it all, and he ponders it, and he considers it. So he sees everything, and because he's perfectly holy and perfectly just, that commands or necessitates that he do something about it. You know, we don't look at a judge with respect who, if, if someone was brought before the judge, had all these charges, legitimate charges, brought against a person, and then they just let them off. No one would respect that judge. But we see crimes going on all the time around us. We see crimes that we commit against him in terms of sin. Those things are going to, there's going to be recompense for, for what happens out in this world and how Christ, how Christ has sacrificed so much and mankind, sinful mankind, has spit in his face and rejected that message. And so it demands that. And sometimes we can forget about that because it hasn't happened yet in terms of God pouring out his wrath, that somehow he's okay with sin. He's okay with those things. He winks at those things. He puts up with them. He doesn't. It's all going to happen at a, at a moment in time. He's chosen, according to his plan, to pour out that wrath, not incrementally over man's uh, uh, span of time on this earth, but at a, a very specific time. We're told in Scripture there's two main definitions of wrath. One is orge, and the other is thumas. And thumos is, is kind of flying off the handle. I know none of us can relate to that. We don't know what that means. It's foreign to us when someone says that term flying off the handle and having a fit of rage. We don't know what you're talking about. That's other churches. That's not here. You know, we know that. But those, those, that's like a sudden thing where you just, there's a flash of rage. You have that and it's over with for the most part. That's not the kind of wrath that we're talking about regarding what's going to happen on this earth. This is a, a different kind of wrath. Orge is a, is a, is a premeditated, planned, uh, calculated, not highly emotional wrath. It's, it's, it's justice. It's, it's, it's wrath based on what is just and what's right and what's appropriate. When God pours out his wrath on this world, it's not going to be something where he's out of control. And he just doesn't know what's going to happen next. And he just might do even more than he had, had thought because he's just you know, out of control thinking of all this. And it's not a fit of rage. It's a calculated, just meeting out of punishment that is due uh, those on this earth. And there, we're, it's, it's going to be during a, a time of seven years called the tribulation. Maybe some of you have heard of, of that, the great, the, the tribulation uh, that the world's going to face. And the last half, the last 1260 days of that seven years is called the great tribulation. And Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24. He said, in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, he said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor even shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be uh, shortened. The time of God pouring out his wrath will be utterly unparalleled. Nothing is going to happen up to that point, and nothing after that will ever parallel that kind of wrath that's poured out on this world. When you do all the calculations of all the battles and everything that happens with all the plagues and all the judgments and the seals and the bowls of wrath poured out, all the things you read in Revelation, all the things you read in, in, in Matthew chapter 24, there's only going to be about 25% of the world's population left just think about that for a moment. We just surpassed 7 billion people on this, on this earth. 
So we're talking about 5.25 billion people that are gone from this world. Think about just the effect on, on, on that that would have in this world. I mean, think about just what the financial recession has done in this world. To say nothing of the devastation and the, and the sun going dark and the, the bodies of heaven, you know, the, the, the celestial bodies falling to the earth and the sea turning to blood. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. This time of unparalleled wrath. And here's the chronology of what's going to happen. The Antichrist is going to be revealed. He's going to sign a peace contract. And Israel will likely be a part of that contract. It's going to be a seven-year peace contract. And part of that contract will most likely be the financing of the, of the temple that the Jews want to, to have built on the Temple Mount there. They even say today the, the coming Messiah will, will bring peace. And part of that peace will be able to bring peace between the, the, uh, the world of Islam and the Palestinians and so forth and the Jews regarding their temple. Right now, the, the, is, the, the, uh, Israel has control over the Temple Mount, of course, but they lease it or turned it over to uh, the Palestinians to, to, to cause peace when they conquered the city of Jerusalem again in, in 1967. So that peace contract is going to be in effect, but the Antichrist is going to break that contract three and a half years in. And Jesus talks a lot about that in Matthew 24 regarding, you know, the Jews... Uh, you know, head to the hills, you know, woe to those nursing mothers, and he's going to say they're going to turn on you. He's going he's to come in and offer a pig, in that, uh, uh, which is considered unclean for the Jews, on the altar there in that new temple that hasn't even been rebuilt or built yet. And so then they're going to realize we've been duped, we've been tricked, and they're going to take off there. And then that's when the great tribulation is going to be unleashed. So where does the rapture fit in? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Our position is that the rapture happens before the tribulation starts. Some people believe it happens in the middle of the tribulation. Some people believe it happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. One of the, t- the two main reasons why I reject that it'll happen in the middle or at the end of the great tribulation. And one of the, one of the biggest reasons is that when that uh, Antichrist signs that peace covenant, that starts the clock ticking regarding the seven-year tribulation. Which means if it were mid-trip, we would be able to count 1,260 days and we would know the, the day that Christ was going to come. And, and it, but all through church history, we've seen, and all through the scriptures, the rapture, the coming of the Lord, is imminent. At any moment, it could happen at any time. So that ceases to be imminent if, it can, if we can calculate the day. Harold Camping's learned this the hard way a few times <laughs> regarding calculating the day. You know, I felt bad for him, but I mean, he is, he's made that his own decision regarding that. Or if it was at the end of the tribulation, we could count seven years and we would know the day that he's coming. That's the biggest reason. But also in Thessalonians, as we've seen many times, he says, we're not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed unto wrath. And so we're going to be spared from that. Now, Paul gets into the meat of all of this in verse 13. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. doesn't want us to be ignorant. So when that gets my attention, there's only, I think, four times where Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant in the New Testament. And usually those areas are the areas where people are the most ignorant sometimes. And so that's important for us to know. He doesn't want us to be ignorant regarding those who have already fallen asleep. So they were concerned about this. They had questions about it. They were insecure about this. And he's, when he talks about falling asleep, he's not talking about the kind of sleep that some of you engage in on Sunday mornings. <laughs> I see you. Huh? You know? 
You know, as, we, as it's been said, you know, preaching is the lost art of talking in someone else's sleep. <laughs> you know, uh, but not talking about that kind of sleep. He's not talking about soul sleep for sure. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. But he's saying because our, when our body dies, because there was a point at which they were, you know, he plainly said, Lazarus is dead. I mean, he knows that we die. But he also refers to it as sleep because it's not the final uh, condition of our bodies because God's going to raise up our bodies as, as Christians. It's not the final place or the, or the final condition that we will find our bodies in. So that's why he says sleep. And it's very comforting to think that there's sleep coming for my body versus death. I mean, I, I like that. But notice Paul reveals the goal of bringing this subject up at the end of verse 13. He says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Those that don't have confidence in Christ because they're not born again, even though they may believe in God, even though they're religious, even though they believe the facts of the gospel mentally, they give mental assent to those things, they haven't been born again. They're not going to heaven. They're not going up in the rapture. It's just a fact. It's so comforting for us to say that everyone that we love is going to heaven. It's not happening. It's not, it's not true. You're contradicting Jesus' words. He did not say everybody, when they die, they go to heaven. He said that only those that are born again shall enter the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 3, verse 3. We don't want to contradict Jesus. He knows what he's talking about. So he says, you aren't like the others that have no hope. Those that aren't Christians legitimately have no hope. And that's why God wants to use this in part, the rapture, to get us to be thinking about eternal things, which includes those that we know that don't know Christ, as some of us have forgotten about, quit praying for, or stop talking to them about, about the Lord. Because they don't have hope, and we don't want them found on this earth to miss the tribulation, or miss the rapture, rather, where there's going to be a strong delusion that's going to be very, very powerful regarding the, the explanation for where Christians went and what's going on in the world at that time. We have hope. We just said a memorial a, a, a couple days ago. Incredible hope filled the room because the person knew Christ. Very encouraging. Now he says in verse 14, for if, and that the idea of the word if there is not, uh, it's not po possibly true. He's saying like since. So he could say, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, notice the word with, bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So he gives the basis for the rapture there in verse 14. You can't miss that. He said, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's all linked to him. And that's what we're going to be thinking about as we consider communion this morning. It's all because of him. Because of his sacrifice, because his death upon the cross, because of his subsequent resurrection where he rose physically from the grave, conquering death, showing he has the authority to, to deliver us from death, we can have the confidence that we're going to be with him, which includes the rapture for those of us that are living when it occurs. And notice he says God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Again, he's not talking about soul sleep. They're not sleeping, not taking a nap. They're alive. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with a nap. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> present with the snooze button. Nope. You know, there's no sleeping in that grave. He says, 
to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The true us, so to speak, is our spirits. And those move on. This is just a tent the Bible describes. And someday he'll give us a new tent. He'll give us a new body. And that happens at the rapture if we're alive. And it happens at the rapture if we're not alive at the time. And that's what he's getting at. Philippians chapter 1 verse 23 tells us this. For I am hard-pressed between the two, talking about staying or, go, staying or leaving this world, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul knew that when he left, he'd be with Christ, not in the grave sleeping. He says, I will be with Christ. So at the rapture, those in Christ who died before us will be united with us. He didn't have to do that because he's going to descend and we're going to get into that. And he's going to bring us to himself. And then we're going to go back to heaven. And that during that, that seven-year tribulation, we're, we're going to be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb, at least for part of that time. I'm hoping it's for the whole seven years. I have quite an appetite. <laughs> and just think feasting with him. And it also includes the Bema seat where we stand before Christ and we give an account for our lives, why we did what we did as Christians. It's not about salvation. It's already settled. It's a whole other judgment at the end of, not only the end of the seven years, and not only at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, but, but beyond that, there's a time where we, there's a time where we're, we're uh, or the unbelievers, rather, are there getting judged for rejecting Christ. We're, this isn't what this is talking about. We're there at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm sure he doesn't make us wait all that time for our rewards. He probably gives us our rewards right when we get to be with him, goes through that whole judgment, seed of Christ there, and then enjoy that meal with him for the rest of the time. I don't know the chronology of it, but I just know that uh, it's going to be great. But notice he says he's going to bring with those. So we meet with him, with them in the air, with Christ, and then we all as a group, those that died that were in Christ before, and us at the same time, we go back to heaven at the same time. Isn't, I want you to see God's uh, care in all of this. I want you to see his love for us in this. Because he didn't have to do that. He could just say, okay, loved ones, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm going to go get your loved ones, and I'm going to bring them back to you in heaven. He says, no, I'm not going to do something way better than that. I'm going to have attention to detail regarding showing you my love. I'm going to bring your loved ones with you. So when, when that happens, and they get their bodies out of the grave before you, just before, and we're talking really, you know, chronology is kind of blurred in one sense because it's so fast, but they get their bodies before us. He raises them first, and then we get our bodies if we're alive at that time, but we're united at the same time, and then we all go back to heaven uh, for this world to have the great tribulation. Have at it. <laughs> Just imagine that. In a moment in time, it happens. Now, in verse 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And he begins the verse with, we say to you by the word of the Lord. We can't pass that up. Did you catch that? By the word of the Lord, by the authority of the Lord, this is going to happen. And that is helpful for us because, you know, we, we can have doubts like anybody else. Is it really going to happen? I mean, I know it says it in his word, and we struggle, we, we waver at times. By the word of the Lord, by the authority of Jesus Christ, the truth of the matter is that this is going to happen. We need to believe it. He's not speaking unbelievers here. He's saying 
don't doubt this. I'm saying it by the authority of Christ, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we won't proceed. We won't go ahead. They were worried about that because Paul talked to them about end times. Sometimes we think, well, that's not appropriate for new believers. They don't need to get into that yet. Paul talked to them about that when he was with them for three weeks. They were brand new Christians, brand new believers. He's talking to them about the Lord and the kingdom of God coming and Christ coming back. And he's, he's referring back to those things. At the end of every chapter in this book, he talks about something about the Lord coming. You can check yourself at the end of every chapter. There's something about the Lord coming back. And, and so they were concerned about, well, if we go, the people that have already died in Christ, we're where are they? We're going to go ahead of them, and then what's going to be left for them? They were worried about it. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. He wants them to be uh, fully confident that they're not going to go ahead of those in terms of their bodies. Spiritually, they are ahead. When we die right now, our spirits go to be with Christ. Our bodies stay here. But then at that rapture, those bodies, and it doesn't matter what form they're in. People worry about cremation or what if, you know, you, you were lost at sea and, you know, the fish ate you and you became part of the fish and then what, you know, people ate the fish and it's like they get all worried about all the complexities of it. It's not too difficult for God. He can take whatever cells or, or, or DNA that's anywhere in this world, he can reconstitute it and, and use it as a basis for our new bodies. Now, I do need to mention that some people believe we get our new bodies right when we die, and they kind of God uses our existing body as like a carbon copy, and, and so that body won't be utilized whatsoever. But I don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. That's just my opinion. If you believe the other way, that's fine. But I believe he's talking about a chronology here of events that happen, because they interpret our passage as the dead in Christ rising first, meaning all through the, all through the Christian age, that the dead in Christ have received their bodies uh, when they died. And I think that the, the language here is talking about at that moment of the rapture, this is what happens. Not this is happening, the dead in Christ rising first all through to, for 2,000 years. I believe that that's kind of hard to put into these verses. That's just my opinion. But the point is, is that we do get a new body someday. So we're, we're not just ghosts up there. We're, you know, he may give us some kind of spiritual you know, uh, body or something to where we can function. We don't know what the other dimension is. We have no idea. But the most important thing is we will be with Christ. So they were concerned about where their loved ones were going. And so he wants to explain this is how it's going to go down. Okay, that's the, the New King Pat version. This is how and Paul's saying it. Verses 16 and 17, I want you to know this is how it's going to go down. And he says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's a lot of things here in this verse. First of all, notice Jesus himself comes. He says, the Lord himself. It's emphatic there. He's, not, he's saying, I'm not sending someone to go get you. And wouldn't we be okay with that <laughs> if he sent what, an angel to come get us? We're not going to complain. This is God's uh, attention to detail. I'm not going to send anyone to go get them. I'm going. You know, when, you, when your kids are somewhere and you want, you want to, to bring them back to your house, usually you don't dispatch somebody. You, I'm, my, they're going to not, especially if they're in trouble. You know, I'm going to go. It's going to be me. I'm going to go get them. But he wants to see us so badly. Remember, we're his bride. He wants to see his bride. He doesn't want the best man to go get the bride. He wants to go get the bride. He's going to come get us. And he says, see, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Heaven's up. 
Because right here we see he's descending. It's another dimension, yes. But he's descending from heaven with a shout. And we're not told what the shout is. Some people guess. Time's up. Time's up. It's over. Game over. You know, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, he said to, to, to uh, John, come up here. And he says, immediately I was in the spirit. And we don't see the church after that. He talks about the church before chapter 4. So maybe he'll say, come up here. I don't know what he'll say. But he's going to say something. And there's also coupled with it the voice of an archangel. Now, we don't know if he's going to be kind of speaking with a shout in, in a way to where it's similar to how an archangel would pronounce something. Or coupled with his voice, also an archangel says something too. You could get both from, from the words there. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how it's going to be. But also the trumpet of God. And I believe that God's going to make it to where we know it's going to happen right before it happens. Because that's just how the Lord is. That's just his heart. To give us that joy. To know that right now you're coming up with me. Whether we hear something or not, we're going to hear something, a trumpet or whatever. We're going to know it's happening. And it probably would be just enough time for us to have that moment of utter joy, probably like this, where we go, ah, it's happening, boom, we're in his presence. That's how I can see it, it happening. But one of the things I want us to see, which I never thought about before my study here and didn't, I didn't read it anywhere, I didn't, and that could be a bad sign, a dangerous sign. Uh, but I think the Lord showed me this. And I'm not saying it's not anywhere else. But I'm just saying, I believe he showed me this, is that look at, the, look at the attention to detail that he had in all of this. And look at, why does he go through so much description there in verse 16? Why does he go through all of this? Why, I mean, he could have just said, and the Lord's going to rapture you. He's going to call you up. He didn't have to go into all this detail that with the shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. He didn't have to say all that. What he's trying to communicate is, the, the, um, the celebration of heaven, that he's coming for us. How, how what heaven thinks about it, what he thinks about it, it's a celebration. And when we think about how hard this life can be at times and how difficult it is to think that God's celebrating by the idea of him coming for us at the time of the rapture brings tremendous comfort and joy to our hearts. He wants us to receive it this morning as an expression of his love for us, that he's just or more excited about coming for us as we ever are about him coming for us. We need to see that. He's being so specific with these details to show us how heaven is celebrating, what he thinks about it, how excited he is. We're usually thinking on our end, and he wants us to, but he is very excited about, us, about it, and he wants us to be filled with joy regarding how he is going to be celebrating at that moment and how victorious it is. This is a sign of victory. The word he uses for shout there is what military generals would use to, to shout advancing or, or to, to shout victory. It's, a, it's an official term of, of victory there. It's victorious. He's conquered every enemy already. And the culmination of the, what he's done in the church is going to happen at that moment where he comes back for us. Beautiful. And he says, the dead in Christ will rise. So the, those that are died already, they will rise physically first. Their bodies will be resurrected and they will meet their spirit with the Lord in the air. And then immediately after that, we're going to be caught up and get our new bodies at the same time. And then he says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds it's literally in clouds, to meet the Lord 
in the air, and thus you will all, we will always be with the Lord. This is the rapture. This is the second coming. The second coming, Christ physically comes back with ten thousands of his saints, we're told in Scripture. He touches his foot down on the Mount of Olives, and it's split in two. And he makes a triumphant entry through the east gate into the, 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 that temple area there. That's not what this is talking about. We're meeting the Lord in the air. He doesn't come down to the earth here. He, we go up to him. Not he, we, he comes to the earth. That's not what he's talking. It's something entirely different. And then he says, and thus you will, we will always be with the Lord, which we'll return to in a moment. I want you to notice the, word, the two words caught up in verse 17. Because that's the word from which we get our word rapture. Some people will criticize who don't believe in the rapture. Ah, oh, rapture. I don't believe that. Malarkey. You know, there's no, there's no expression of this word in Scripture. There's no, where's the word rapture in the church? There's no word rapture in, in my Bible. You read the wrong Bible. Get a Latin Vulgate. And then raptus will be there. It's a, it's a Latin word. In the Greek, it's, it's uh, harpazo. And someone has said, that rapture sounds a lot faster than harpazo. Harpazo sounds kind of slow. It sounds like kind of like a, a bean, you know. There's a garbanzo bean and there's a harpazo bean. And it just sounds kind of slow, you know. Uh, but that's the Greek word. And it, and, it, and it means to snatch away. Kind of violently. Like suddenly snatch away. You ever play that game with your kids where you put something in your hand and, and you're trying to grab it out of the other person's hand before they can close it? And you're trying to just snatch it away. That's the picture here. We're told all over Scripture, the same word is used in different ways to snatch. You know, when Philip was caught away, translated, when, after he got done sharing with the Ethiopian eunuch there, he says he was caught away in the spirit. That's the same word. It's harpazo. It's to violently snatch away. And people say, well, I don't know if I believe that. The church history doesn't, they didn't, they didn't believe that all through church history. They didn't believe a lot of things in church history. They didn't believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, through history. They didn't believe in spiritual gifts mostly throughout church history. Church history does not have a good track record. It's not the basis of why we believe what we believe. It's scripture. And by the way, about rapture not being in the Bible, neither is the word trinity. Neither is omnipresent or omnipotent. All these words that we use, but the concept is there. I'd like to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 57 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we, we shall all be changed. That's a good scripture for the nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Uh, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, it says there, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And that, what is the twinkling of an eye? It's, it's, it's how fast light can reflect off your eye. So when you see light shine on someone's eye and reflect off of it, that's how fast he's talking about. That fast. Just think of the power it would require to snatch away every single Christian that truly knows him from this world simultaneously, concurrently at the same time. How much power, in, even if it happened slowly, and we were just kind of like transformers, you know, up, how much power that would take. <laughs> but think about how much power it takes in a moment, in, a, in that fast. Boom, we're gone. And Romans 8.11 says, If he who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, he will also transform your lowly bodies to life. The catalyst for us changing into our new bodies at the time of the rapture is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that makes us 
instantly into our, the, kind of the, the butterfly uh, compared to the, the caterpillar that we are in, in that comparison of metamorphosis. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the one. He's the one that changes in the twinkling of an eye. He says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the twinkling of an eye, as fast as light can ref- reflect off your eye, we're going to be caught up to be with him and meet our loved ones. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to bring the loved ones. We'd be fine with seeing them, seeing them in heaven. But he, he thought of everything. And he thought of everything to describe how much he's celebrating and how victorious he, he is in, at that moment when all those things occur to bring us up to him. And then he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. How? How are we supposed to comfort one another with these words? And why are we supposed to comfort one another? What good does it do? To think about the rapture. You know, some people think, oh, you're just believing that rapture because you're wishful thinking. Well, you know what? I'm glad that the rapture is true because of what's going to happen, what I'm going to be spared from. But I don't believe it because I want to be spared from all that's coming. Because that doesn't have any basis in Scripture. We have to believe things because Scripture teaches it. And so I'm thankful that it happens to be true also in Scripture that it's a reality because I really don't want to go through what's coming. And if we read and if we study what's coming, it's far greater than what we even imagine. It's far greater than what I already know about it. I know it. It's far greater than what we can comprehend. People's hearts will fail for fear, it says. People will cry that the rocks will fall on them to spare us from this, this, uh, what's happening. And, and, and people will writhe with the judgments for months, you know, this, this, when they get stung by the, those beasts that come out of the abyss. I mean, it's just... We'll get to Revelation, uh, and we'll see all that's there, but we'll be spared from all of that. That brings us tremendous comfort, that we're going to be spared from his wrath because we're not appointed to his wrath. God wants us comforted. And he also uses this in, com- in, in our, one another's lives because whatever affliction that we're going to, remember, that's what Paul's writing in the, in the middle of. He's writing to people that are in affliction because it shows us that this isn't going to last forever. That it, at, at some point, this could be interrupted. Whatever I'm going through, no matter how painful it is as a Christian, all of what I'm going through could be interrupted, and, I, and we could be with the Lord. Before this service is over, we could hear that trumpet, and we could be with him. Some of you are praying for that. Deliver me from this sermon, please. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully I'm not. But, but it's going to happen at any moment. It could happen, and it brings tremendous comfort, and he tells us to do it. This isn't an optional thing. He says, comfort one another. It's a command. We need to remind people that the rapture is coming at any moment. God will use that in one another's lives. In our lives, we will bring perspective to people because they will see that this life isn't all that there is. That can creep into our, our hearts, even as believers. We forget about the rapture. We forget about eternal things by comforting one another, by reminding one another that this is really going to happen. It's not just written on a page. It's reality. It could happen at any moment. 
that brings us comfort. If it doesn't bring us comfort, that, that, that begs the question, are we right with Christ? Are we right with Christ? If we're not right with Christ, we don't want him to come. And there could be other reasons why we don't want him to come. You know, in a sense, you know, well, I have more things I want to do for him. There's, you know, there's, I want to have kids. Or I want to, you know, we sometimes think of those things. But trust us, we want to miss what's coming in this world. We don't want to experience, there won't be any fulfilling any dreams that we may have once this tribulation starts. It's all going out the window, everything, the whole fabric of the society. And I want you to think about what's happening right now in this world. The pressure of to come together as a world government, the technology of a mark of the beast being able to be implemented today could happen. We have the, all the, 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 uh, the, the technology for that. The, the departing from Christ, the, the false Christ that have come up, the unbelief, the financial, everything, it's all coming together. Israel, of all the nations that are, you know, in the tribulation, we're told that the certain nations are going to be aligned together and attack Israel. And those same nations are starting to build relationships more and more with each other right now. Russia, uh, uh, Iran, I mean, Egypt now has, I mean, Mubarak never had a desire to have war with the Jews. Now he's not in power. And now this, this Muslim Brotherhood is way hostile to the Jews. Now they're in a place to align with Russia and align with Iran and Turkey, who's not a part of the EU, and they're very highly Muslim right now. It's all coming together. They're going to advance on Israel, and they're going to be smacked down. <laughs> That's another King Pat uh, version there. They're going to be smacked down. God's going to give them the, 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 his judgment, and he's going to show that he is strong. Read it, uh, strong on their behalf. Read it in Ezekiel chapter 7, 37, 38, and 39. Read it for yourself. You'll see it. So it's all coming together. So it brings incredible comfort. What makes heaven heaven is not the streets of gold and the glassy sea. Those are going to be great, and those are going to be wonderful. But what makes heaven heaven is what we've already read when he says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What makes heaven is that he'll be there. We'll be with him. It doesn't matter where we'll be as long as we're with him. That's all that matters. So we're told we're going to be delivered out of that. But there's a second reason that it comforts us and helps us knowing the rapture. Because we can't be indifferent about it. Because it's, God has put it in, into our, our line of thinking and our way of thinking and, our, and what's supposed to be before us because he knows the, the sobering effect it's supposed to have on us. Because we don't want to be in willful disobedience to him and doing something that would, that would hurt his heart in the middle of the rapture. Right when it happens, we don't want to be sinning right when the rapture happens. It, we, it's supposed to purify us. He, well, we, he told us to, when the parable of the minas, or the minas, however you say it, you know, to be occupied till I come. Be found faithful when I come. Be about my business when I come. Not uh, wasting our lives and hoarding it on ourselves. That's the American dream sometimes. Not always. That's this culture putting pressure on us to forget about eternity and to think about this world supremely and to spend our lives on ourselves. And God's always working to get our lives on him, our focus on him, and thinking about eternity and the lost and the people that need Christ because we don't want them to be separated eternally from God. We don't want them to miss the rapture, of course. So that knowledge does a work in us. And John the Apostle wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2, through 2 and 3, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. In other words, the totality of what we shall be. 
But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. To the extent to which he is pure is the extent to which God uses it in our lives to make us more holy as we're expecting him to come at any moment. So that brings comfort to us. And we can't just sit around waiting for someone to comfort us. That's true, that'll happen. But he wants us to be proactively looking for people to comfort and to remind them that he could come at any moment. The early church, I mean, Paul is saying at one point, I wish that you would be like me and be single and not marry because the Lord's coming back. I mean, what if people listened to Paul back then in terms of his personal preference? There'd be no church today. There'd be no, <laughs> because there, there wouldn't be any, you know, people promulgating or, or you know, uh, reproducing. I mean, Paul had this idea that he's going to be coming any second. So that's why we're looking for Jesus. We're not, if, if it was mid-trib or post-trib, we'd be looking for the Antichrist to sign that peace contract. We're not looking for him. We're looking for Jesus to come. And that hope purifies us. I'd like to close with this. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Notice he doesn't say, and I will come to you, you know, entirely. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking, I will come again and receive you to myself. In other words, in the air. I'm going to come down, and you're, then you're going to come up to me in the air. That where I am, there you may be also. What makes heaven heaven is that we'll be with Christ. And that needs to be brought before us regularly. We need to comfort one another with those words. We need to have the reality of that work through our hearts and our minds so that we live holy lives, lives that are set apart for him. And to be thinking about eternity, to be thinking about the people that don't know Christ yet, who, who won't go up in that rapture if it happened today. We all know those people. We can think of them in our minds that have rejected Christ. God wants to use us to reach them. And we may say that message to them over and over again, and they may never receive. We have no control over that. But God's called us to be a faithful witness, to be trying to reach them consistently until we don't have one breath left in us, whether we live to the rapture or not. Very important for us to think about that, to consider how important it is that he wants to use us to comfort one another and to reach the lost, to be thinking about eternity. And remember, he enjoys coming to get us more than we enjoy going to him. It's celebratory, and it's, a, and it's an expression of victory that he communicates to us in our passage. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've thought of everything, Lord. And thank you that you're so looking forward to shouting and to that trumpet being blown for us to come to you, for you to receive us to yourself. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, they come to you today and receive the forgiveness of their sins. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that's, friv that's wasting their life, not living for you, but living for themselves, I pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to get their attention, as only your Holy Spirit can do. We thank you that we get the privilege of living a different kind of life. Thank you that you don't allow us to say the same, Lord. 
Thank you that you change us. Thank you that you make us more holy and more holy all the time. Make us more mature in our relationship with you. We pray, Jesus, that you would come quickly. We pray that you'd come for us. We can't wait to be with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.